Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. And the USA is one of only, I believe, my math, three countries who will send a full Olympic team of eight people to, to Tokyo. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm very lonely, so I'm very happy to talk to you. I know. It's been tough. Self-isolating. It's hard. I'm not a, I'm not a naturally self-isolating person. So this is very hard. Yeah. I'm... I wave at my neighbors as I walk by with the dog. We visit. I was telling you before, we visit with the dogs in the neighborhood who have electric fences. So I talk to those dogs. And wave at the owners from the window. It's it, we're all going a little mad, I think. It is, and and Ben and I went out running yesterday at the park late, so there weren't a ton of people. But I felt like Miss Pac-Man. Every anytime I saw a person, it was like a ghost, and I turned and went the other direction. I was just like, I, I, I don't know where to go, and I felt like I was just going to go. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> all our parks are closed because people are stupid. Oh, you're kidding. They closed into nope. Wow. We still have parks. We don't have playgrounds or like tennis courts or any kind of court thing. Skate parks are closed, but uh, we still have open space that we can go to for now. Yeah, no. People here are stupid, so we can't have nice things. Okay. Come on, people. Social distance yourselves. Let's be safe out there. Today, we are talking with Phil Andrews, whom you met last week on the show that we talked about uh, the postponement of Tokyo 2020. Phil is the CEO of USA Weightlifting, and we interviewed him on Friday, March 20th, which was a few days before the announcement that Tokyo had been postponed. So the first part of our interview was about the COVID-19 situation at that time, which quickly became something that was out of date. So we're not including that in the interview here, but we're picking up our conversation at an important point, especially for the sport of weightlifting, talking about what happens with doping testing during this time. Take a listen. The documentary came out from ARD, the German uh, station, about yep. corruption and cover-ups of doping. What was your reaction to that? And then what was a sport's reaction to that? Well, there's, there's quite a lot to un unpack in that one. The 
uh, right now uh, we're undergoing investigation uh, with Professor Richard McLaren of Canada and Martin W, who used to run the Serious Organized Crime Unit in Great Britain. And uh, so what's happened so far is that the uh, president, Dr. Ayan, has stepped aside for a period of initially 90 days, and then uh, that actually just got extended till June 19th for further 60 days. So um, we have to see what that comes out with, uh, which... We're looking at not just the allegations that are made in the documentary, but things that might come from those allegations. So, for example, if there's an anti-doping rule violation that comes out of that, uh, then that needs to be referred to the ITA. Dr. Ayan has already resigned his IOC membership, so we see what happens uh, with respect to his presidency of the IWF. The acting president is an American named Ursula Garza Papandrea. I believe she's only one of two female presidents of an international federation right now. Um, and then there's items as well to look at that make sure that these issues could never raise their head again, uh, whether true or not, quite frankly, which looks at governments. You know, what we do with the IS governance to make sure that it's changes, uh, to put more checks and balances in place against corruption and particularly anti-doping corruption. What I will say is some good things have happened this quad, such as outsourcing the anti-doping to the ITA, which means that the IWF no longer directly control um, the anti-doping. Obviously, there were some concerning things that came out of, of the documentary, such as Hunado still being uh, used to test uh, the world championships. That was a great concern to me. There was some allegations around child doping in Thailand, whilst frankly not surprising, given that Thailand have a track record of doping even in this quad, still requires further investigation. But, you know, it, it's unfortunately the sport has a sordid history with dirty athletes, with doping, uh, and whilst it's had some massive improvements, I guess with every negative, there's an opportunity, um, and the opportunity here is to make some massive improvements to sport weightlifting in our governance, in our anti-doping strategy. You know, I, I don't want to predict the results of, of Richard's investigation. I act as secretary to the Oversight Integrity Commission, so uh, there's, there's pieces of information there I know that I, I'm not limited real at this point. But you know, with all that said, I, I certainly hope be a more positive, a more positive approach to protecting the rights of of athletes who do compete clean in a sport that, frankly, is a really, really good, interesting sport to to be a part of, but is dragged hugely down by the level of people who are willing to cheat the system, either in the corruption side or, or more prevalently, the anti-doping side of the sport. You know, you mentioned that the U.S. has this decentralized training model. How yep. hard is it to maintain clean sport in the U.S. with everybody so spread out? I think it's easier. I mean, we have USADA who are used to dealing with that. Uh, the reality okay. is we decentralized in 2016, and that's actually been a revolution for us. Uh, and I can go into some of the reasons why that is. But uh, to answer the question, we weren't really ever truly centralized because we always had Olympians and national team members who trained outside of Colorado Springs. And I think that's really the case for almost every sport, um, track and field very much so, um, gymnastics very much so, especially in women, men less so. 
But for for many of the individual sports, they do tend to have a semi uh, centralized model at, at reasonably at best. So you can make two arguments. You could just say, well, it's more challenging because physically showing up at one gym in Colorado Springs is really easy for your starter. So you test nine or ten people at once. But frankly, with the distribution of doping control officers across the country that USADA has, then it's relatively easy to have a competition test people uh, in their homes across the country. And with the use of technology, the training has become relatively easy too. And to be fair, the whereabouts updates, now you can text, you can go into an app. The age of the the smartphones made that super easy for the athlete. Uh, And it's not so easy outside of the U.S. where... Uh, you're using the Adam system versus the Simon system that Yasada uses, but for us, it's a fairly successful model. We've we've really never not really expressed or seen any problems uh, with particularly with doping control in our elite athletes. By the way, that's not to say that we don't have issues with doping in weightlifting in the U.S. That's, I'll be very upfront about that. Uh, we have about 20 violations per year. Uh, and those mostly come out of lower-level athletes, some of whom that's to do with a lack of education or a lack of paying attention to education. We became the first NGB to require uh, anti-doping education online before you go to any competition. But still, some people don't pay attention, and they will take uh, supplements which contain um, either contaminated items or just they don't look at what that supplement contains. Uh, and don't use the party-tested supplements such as MSF certified for sport or informed sport. That is a that's still a big issue for us. And there are some people who, you know, full disclosure, are certainly actively engaging in doping. And those are the people we want to catch. We do catch them, or rather, you start a dance. But fortunately enough, that problem doesn't seem to emanate from our elite athletes. It's really coming from the lower levels. Still a problem, but it means it's not a problem at the elite level. Simply because of the, I think a big part of that is not only the desire of our athletes to compete clean, but the sheer volume of testing. So then, like, when will Thailand learn? Well, the, Thailand, the situation with Thailand, context for, for those listening, they had nine positives at one World Championships. Those positives have now begun to be closed. That's allowed what's called the Independent Member Federations panel to meet. That panel looks at banning countries. So first of all, they're already out of the Olympic Games because they did a provisional suspension of themselves, which was a little bit bizarre, in order that they could retain hosting the World Championships. Um, They did not compete from March of last year onwards. They've already had one year out of competition. That means that they can't go to the Olympics. So they're already out of the Games. That's got quite a big piece of damage for them because weightlifting is the most successful Olympic sport in Thailand. So beyond that, they're now, uh, before the, the Independent Member of Federations panel, they already banned Egypt for a period of two years as a federation. So logic, and I don't know the result, but logic would suggest that Thailand having more cases would perhaps be in for a longer ban. If that's the case, I don't know what else you can do to help them learn that lesson. If you can't compete in world championship events or Olympic Games or Asian Games, you know, that's a pretty stringent sanction on the Federation. 
plus the financial uh, impact of that in terms of lack of funding from their own government, plus the fines they pay, need to pay to the IWF as part of that. I, I tend to agree when are they going to learn their lesson, quite frankly. But you know, when, you, when you're, frankly, abusing the sport as much as that, when the sport is already on the ropes because of the amount of doping in the sport, you have to question where these people's minds are at. But at the same time, now with these very stringent sanctions on federations supposed to just athletes, hopefully that does have some effect on, you know, we don't see them come back in and a year later we're banning Thailand again. Uh, I really hope that doesn't happen, but you know, certainly you have to consider the possibility, I guess. Yeah, weightlifting has been on the ropes and they were put on conditional status for Paris 2024, but last year were put fully on the program. What would, what Correct. was going on within your federations during the time where you were on conditional status? What What did you do to change things within the sport and also convince the uh, IOC and the Paris Organizing Committee to keep the sport on the program? I think that the biggest thing was made some, some big changes. And I just talked about the Independent Member of Federations panel. That was one of them. The first thing that we did as a, as a sport was ban nine countries uh, for the retests in results in 2012 and 2016. Those were banned for a year. I think that was a start that helped in, in sending the message that you need to do something about this, ladies and gentlemen. And I will say that those the majority of those countries, Russia, Kazakhstan, um, Moldova, Ukraine, China was one of them for, for a year, have, as a body gentleman, have improved their improved their performance is, is the wrong word, actually, Dave. Their numbers have decreased where you'd be more convinced that there is a better doping control regimen in, in those countries. So that's the first thing we did. Second thing we did was pull together something called the Clean Sport Commission, which was uh, chaired by an American lawyer named Richard Young. That Clean Sport Commission looked at the anti-doping policies, the anti-doping strategy, and basically what more can we do to hold federations and athletes to account on clean sport. The biggest item that came out of that was outsourcing our, um, our anti-doping operation to the ITA, the International Testing Authority, which is actually a division of the IOC. Prior to that, between the initial report and, and being fully outsourced to the ITA, we went with the Canadians, the CCES, Canadian Head of Ethics and Sport, to manage the out-of-competition testing. Now, in-competition, out-of-competition, case management, results management, everything is over to the ITA, which is very good in the context of the recent ARD documentary. Uh, you know, that problem is for intents and purposes, been solved, even if it proves to be true in the investigation. Obviously, that brings up different issues in the personnel sense, but it definitely is comforting to know that we've somewhat solved that problem or made that problem much less likely to arise by outsourcing results management, testing, both in and out of competition to, to the ITA. And last thing is, quite frankly, significantly increased the volume and budget associated with tests uh, across the world. One of the other items that came up as part of that was the new qualification system, which we've sort of briefly talked about here. That We used to go to two world championship events, and your points as a team between those two events determined how many Olympians you would send to the Games. And then you could choose from your Olympic trials, whatever you did it in your country, which Olympians those were. 
Now what we do is it's a rankings-based system based on points, and those uh, points are garnered through six Olympic qualification events over an 18-month period. So that gets you a ranking list, so you can have a good idea who those people are going to the Games pretty early on, um, and we've talked about how that, how that naming process might give some testing advantages, but notwithstanding that, you also have had those people show up in a well-tested competition six times. That doesn't mean they're necessarily being tested six times, but it does mean that they're eligible for testing six times. Plus, they've had to have, have put in their whereabouts for two months for non-world championship events and three months for world championship events uh, across that time period, which is giving us further time to test those athletes uh, as a federation. So overall, there's been a significant rise in the, I guess, appropriateness might be the right word, of the anti-doping program, given the risk in the sport. Um, and I think looking at some of the results in some of the countries which have proven doping records, especially from the Olympic Games retests, such as Azerbaijan, uh, such as Russia, such as Kazakhstan, you can certainly see that that's had a significant effect. The only one that has not really had any numbers go down and was banned from the 2008 and 2012 retests uh, is China. So given the changes that you just mentioned about the qualifications for 2020, how has that affected the makeup of the American team? It actually hasn't. The only, well, I say it hasn't. There was an opportunity, so step, step back one second. When the IWF came out with that objective qualification by ranking, what happens is if you have more than four in the top eight in the world, maximum you can set as a country is four. If you have more than four in the top eight in the world, one per bodyweight category per country, so there's seven bodyweight categories, so you could theoretically have up to seven, like China does. And then what would happen is at the end of the qualification window, the IWF will come to that country and say, of the and we have five, so which is why we're using this number. If you have if you have five in the top eight in the world, which of four of those do you wish to send? And it's your choice as a country who you wish to send. So what we said was we're going to go to an objective qualification criteria based on that, which looks at the ranking within the bodyweight category. So in other words, what is your world ranking within the Olympic bodyweight category? And the highest go, highest four go. We have one athlete who is in the top eight in the world as we sit here today, who may have had an opportunity to improve their ranking at the Pan American Championships, which is postponed because of the coronavirus. So in terms of where we were ranked going in and where we've been ranked for a little bit of a while here, our eight Olympians remain our same eight Olympians. But there is one athlete for whom they may certainly feel that they were denied that opportunity. We're looking into options for that athlete and what, and it's not yet clear from IOC, IWF, USOPC uh, perspective of what options we can explore for that particular athlete. But we're in close contact with her and her coach uh, on options. We've got her with the athlete ombudsman and trying to be as supportive as we possibly can whilst we figure out how do we look at that particular case. So with that case, she would be replacing another American athlete? It's a question that's of, right. okay. And she's clear. I don't want to take a place away from that athlete because that's not fair either because they're ranked right now. 
So, um, you know, we're all clear on that. Everybody's agreed on, on that and be very honest in the conversation about it. It's just a case of, well, she could have overtaken you know, at, the, at the Pan Am, so it still remains the fact. And, and how do you deal with an issue like that where coronavirus has denied that opportunity? And one way of looking at that, at that is quite cold, which says, well, perhaps should have done more in the earlier part of the qualification. Okay, reasonable point. But at the same time, nobody anticipated coronavirus occurring. Yeah, that's it's hard because there's all this what what could have been across all sport now. Let's talk a little bit about USA weightlifting and how weightlifting has evolved in this country. So you took on the role of CEO not that long before 2016, and that was right. the year that Sarah Robles medaled in Rio, and that ended a huge medal drop for the United States. And right. the U.S. didn't have a great reputation internationally. So what have you done in the organiz organization done to change the reputation and improve the skill level of the elite athletes? Well, I think the skill level of the elite athletes was improved by the elite athletes, to be honest. Um, I think they, they deserve the, the, the most credit, but, but we can go a little bit into that. But the we did a few things. The first thing we did was we re restructured the staff here at USA Weightlifting. We restructured all of how we do business. You know, we brought in things like a monthly membership. We brought in things like a Tri Weightlifting Day. We brought in things that are just more proactive. Uh, we brought in the American Open Series, which is a new event to uh, really encourage the beginner to moderate weightlifter. So a sort of entry-level event, um, rather than having to go from zero to the national championships in your age group. We started our recruitment program, uh, which has proven relatively successful in bringing people in from other sports. Um, actually, I think we'll see more at the elite level of, of the success of that in the next quad, though we have won international medals already through that program, including a gold medal at the Junior Worlds. And uh, then we looked at the governance and the structure of the organization. Um, I think, you know, if you look, there's a, an academic model named SPLIS, which comes out of Belgium. And that's a really, really good model for this, where governance underpins things. And there's about 90, I think it's 91 total points of what makes a successful sport organization above that. A lot of those relate to publicly funded organizations that you see in the majority of the rest of the world. We're not that. We had to figure out how to raise additional funds so we can divert those towards athletes. We've done that fairly successfully. We've doubled the size of USA Weightlifting's budget over that time, uh, coronavirus aside. So we've done fairly well off the platform. And on the platform, that's allowed us to uh, pay some of the largest stipends to any athlete in the Olympic movement. And that's been critical to allow people to be able to train as they need, uh, where they want to, and be able to make weightlifting their full-time occupation. We've also promoted weightlifting very heavily um, as much as we can. And it's been a slow burn, don't get me wrong. Uh, in the media, we've we've got into more high schools, we've got into more universities. There's, there's a whole bunch of range of things, and we can talk about any of them you like. On the athlete side, our women's team has really gone on, a, on frankly, a tear since 2016. And especially depth of young lifters is going to see us well uh, going into 2024. Part of this also was helped, by the way, by CrossFit coming out and, and really bringing more people into the sport, putting more people, a barbell into more people's hands. Uh, we've also concentrated a lot of effort around bringing more women into the sport, not just on the field of play, 
although that's been the strongest response, but also into coaching, into administration, into our board, into our committees, into international refereeing, right across the board, you know, because I, I feel like you, when you get involved in a sport, you want to see people like you. And if you walk out as a, as a, a young girl, for example, on a platform, we want to make sure that, you know, there's, there's men and women judging that there's, you know, women as our announcers, as women on our commentary teams, just to make sure you feel very much welcomed, quite frankly, as, as part of that. And it's historically seen as a men's sport, so we really need to change that. The women have gone on an amazing run. Kate and I, uh, in 2016, was just coming into the sport. She was a gymnast before that. Uh, was then called Kate Vibert. She's now the world champion. Uh, Shall we go into Tokyo 2020? Um, she's almost, well, I'd say almost certainly it's a little bit much. I think that's perhaps a little bit too weighty as an expectation. But she's a, a very likely medal prospect going into those games and now the IWF first ever American to win IWF Lifter of the Year. We've also got some really good results from Maddie Rogers. Maddie is three-time world medalist. It's the first time since rubbing gold in the early 90s, uh, when unfortunately women weren't in the Olympic Games. Uh, Sarah has continued to have a very solid quad in the Pan American Games, uh, setting Pan American records. She also won the World Championship in 2017. Jordan Dela Cruz with her 195. It's a really good prospect for a medal in Tokyo. Um, that's the biggest total for a super lightweight, so 49 kilos, about 90, uh, sorry, 105 pounds. I'm British, so I've all, I, I came from Britain <laughs> and still working kilo because I chose to work in a sport that has kilos only. So um, it's the largest total by a, a, any non-Asian woman since 2010, so 10 years um, since the, the last person to total uh, around that number. Uh, in the lightest bodyweight category in the Olympics. Um, so we expect Jordan to do very well in Tokyo. And, and that general progression of our women has been underpinned by an unrelenting amount of support from us, sure. You know, financially, we're supporting them in the field. We're the only NGB, I think, that gives a performance fund so they can use that for massage, they can use that for recovery, they can use that even for equipment if we need in the field. We fund very heavily our personal coaches as well because we believe in their value when it comes to the field of play. We changed a lot of things. We have this hashtag internally called it can be done because so many people said weightlifting can never be successful. So we've proven that wrong in, in a lot of areas. Uh, we've taken our, our sponsors from two or three uh, up to now. We, we signed our 20th partner recently and that's now coming up for about 10% of our revenue. And we expect Tokyo to be tremendously successful as a result of all of these things. I've jumped around a little bit. Um, and I haven't talked about too much about our men's team, but we also have two young, amazing talents named CJ Cummings and uh, Harrison Morris. Uh, and the, the men's drought is even longer. Uh, the last men's medal for weightlifting was in 1984. Mario Martinez and Guy Carlton won that year, uh, silver and bronze. And uh, we could very well see the end of that drought from either CJ or Harrison, or perhaps even both, in Tokyo. CJ has won four straight junior worlds. He's the only person ever to do that, either gender. Harrison has uh, set world youth and world junior records. And he's also, by the way, one of the former gymnasts I was mentioning earlier. So we've got this really great group of athletes. And what's most exciting for me is you know, we're, we've already talked about the, the fifth person in the top eight that was not even thinkable four years ago that we would have 
that many women so far up the ranking list. And the USA is one of only, I believe, my math, three countries who will send a full Olympic team of eight people to, to Tokyo, the other two being China and North Korea. So we've seen this really great progression. And what's really exciting is seeing the next generation coming up as well, that it looks like we could continue that momentum into 2024 and potentially even LA. Let's talk about stipends, because I do remember four years ago, Sarah talking in the news about how rough it was to train and maintain a living and and be an elite athlete. And and back when I went to the, the Pan Ams in 2008 or 2009, they were talking about how low the stipends were and how hard it was to exist as an uh, as an elite athlete and maintain that. So what what are the stipends these days? So our top stipend in the USA weightlifting now is $4,000 a month plus a fund for, for your recovery tools and, and other items to do with performance. We call it the uh, performance project funds. So that, that looks after anything that can help your performance on the field of play. And we also provide digital services to allies, sports psychology, sports nutrition, sleep coaching, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but yes, $4,000 a month is our top end stipend. Um, and, and basically that means you're in the top four in the world. And then below that uh, is uh, what's called the gold stipend, uh, which is $2,500 a month. So uh, that's about $60,000 a year, um, plus medal bonuses um, at major events. Plus, of course, uh, there's also bonuses at the Olympics that come from both us and the U.S. Olympic Committee. Sorry, U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And finally... There is, of course, opportunities for a lot of these athletes to earn from endorsements outside of USA weightlifting as well. And and that's been a a really changed landscape as well because of the popularity growth of weightlifting. But there's obviously a lot more companies who are able to to get involved in in supporting these athletes too, which we're tremendously grateful for. So where is that money coming from? Because, I mean, that's a nice, healthy stipend. Yeah, don't get me wrong. We want to, we would like to support athletes deeper into our roster. You know, we we support um, roughly about 25 athletes total on some level of stipend, and below the ones I've talked about, there's the silver level and the bronze level as well. And we do have slightly more women than we do men on stipends because of the depth of our women's team. That money is coming from USA Weightlifting, and our uh, business model is predicated really on um, a consumer-facing side. So in other words, membership revenue, our club revenue, our coaching education revenue, and yes, our sponsorship has grown to a point where it's it's an effective part of our, our revenue. Donors as well. Um, we, we did something called the Tokyo Strong Fund, not specifically related to the stipend element of it but that's really helped us put together a training center in tokyo and, and given the athletes you know, we'll be staying in a hotel um in tokyo so that we can keep our personal coaches so some friends and family close and also the our service providers like our sports psychologist our sports nutritionist and we can control the food as well much better but basically we, we know we've got a, a unique chance to make 60 years of history in tokyo and our donors came in to really help us put together that that circumstance but that's also led on to other donor opportunities where we've seen further donations come into usa weightlifting uh, which has helped us obviously fund the stipend program in part uh, but the the biggest element of our revenue is still coaching education 
a little while ago you were talking about in the transformation of USA weightlifting, bringing in different people and onto the USAW staff. And one of those is Piros Dimas, who is a legendary weightlifter from Greece. How did you convince him to come over? You know, there's actually kind of a, I guess, a heart pinching, heartwarming story to this. Oh, we love um, that. <laughs> yeah, well, you may or may not. It's got some sadness to this one, I'm afraid. So, Pyrrhus was our guest of honor, or one of our guests of honor. We had a few at our 2016 Olympic trials, and that's where a conversation began. Um, what I noticed is that Pyrrhus reads a scoreboard, which is basically how you would choose your attempts in weightlifting, as good as anybody I've ever seen. Uh, and we began talking that weekend, um, and uh, he has some links with the now acting IWF president, then chair of USA Weightlifting, uh, Ursula Papandrea, and uh, some others here in the US as well. Uh, so long story short, we got talking, and we continued to talk there. We then spoke again at the Junior Worlds and, and basically came to an agreement. And the biggest reason that he was interested was his wife had a desire to see their uh, their family move to the United States, primarily for the educational opportunities in the U.S. Piros himself saw with increasing, I think he called it the waking the sleeping giant um, of the U.S. team. He saw that you know we're moving in the right direction and wanted to be a part of that. I don't think that was necessarily an anti-Greek statement. That man cares more about Greece, I think, than, than possibly most other citizens of Greece. But he did see and comment on the the rise in USA weightlifting, and you know I think the big the big sign of that for us at the time was CJ Cummings, who's you know really setting the world on fire as a 17 year old at the time, maybe a 16 year old at the time I believe actually. So long story short, we came to an agreement in Tbilisi, Georgia, uh, which was the Junior Worlds that particular year. Um, and then he joined us uh, subsequently at the at the end of 2016. We na- actually announced it during the Olympic Games, uh, and he helped coach uh, in the back room for with a couple of our athletes during the Olympics. Uh, there's a large restriction on uh, credentials uh, at the Olympic Games, which I can bore you totally with the nuts and bolts of that if you wish, but <laughs> it meant we couldn't get necessarily all of our regular lineup back there. We've, we've solved that problem for 20 through some proactive conversations. But Pyrrhus, because he was there uh, with a credential, was able to help us with, with a couple of athletes, uh, which was very pleasing. And then he joined us in um, in 2016 and moved fully here in, in early 2017. Unfortunately, his wife then passed away. Um, and so this is why I'm saying there's a heartwarming story and a not-so-heartwarming part of it. And we knew that was likely to occur in 2016, unfortunately, uh, when we when we all made that agreement, which is why he had some flexibility in that first year between Greece and the United States. Long story short, her her wish was fulfilled. Um, his entire, um, all his four kids are now here in the U.S., all studying in U.S. schools or universities. He himself today is in Greece. Unfortunately, he's got stuck there. Um, uh, during the coronavirus outbreak, because he's an O1, it means outstanding ability visa holder. That's not included in the government's exclusion for travel. So, in other words, only U.S. citizens and green card holders can get in right now. We're working quite hard to figure out a way where we can get him back into the U.S. Uh, so he can be with uh, particularly his youngest son, Nico. 
because my immediate thought was, wait, who's taking care of the kids? I mean, I know some of them are older, so they're probably taking care of each other, but still. Right. So some of them are older. The uh, Elaine's the eldest, and uh, she actually went to Northwestern, and uh, she's getting involved. Um, one of uh, Pierce's colleagues, um, we essentially have two uh, people who look after our sports team, um, sports side of our, our area, which is Mike Gatone and Pierce Demas. Uh, they both live in northern Chicago. And um, uh, Mike and, and his wife, Terry, are certainly helping out quite a bit, and, and regularly do. And together with um, Pierce's sister-in-law as well, who also lives in the Chicago area. So there's, there's plenty of people around. It doesn't mean he doesn't want to be back there with Nico but, uh, and with, with the rest of the family too. But um, we're working it out, I think is fair. Yeah, Corona goes many levels right now. Oh, yeah, that is absolutely right. Um, I mean, I was well prepared because I tend to keep myself to myself as it is. So, you know, restrict yourself from social gatherings. Oh, I've been preparing my entire life at this very moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, wait. Okay, we're going to get off weightlifting for just two seconds because you said that. But you managed to hook yourself an American wife over in London. I mean, that's not to ask a personal question, but that sounds like quite a little story. So yeah, we met during the uh, the Olympics and Paralympics. Um, actually, during really during the Paralympics in in London, uh, we either tell people we met at the airport or we met during the games, uh, depending on how well we know you and how many questions we want. Both are actually true. So it's um, the uh, she came off the plane. We I was uh, managed the Team USA training center in London at the University of East London, amongst a number of other things, but that was one of the main things we had. And we'd had some issues with some of the transportation. So it was the one day I happened to get on the bus to go over to Heathrow. Uh, And to this day, I'm reminded that I had a coffee and did not offer to stop for coffee for the Americans. It's it's been eight years now, and I still remember. I still reminded that regularly. Um, Our first interaction was, "Hi, I'm Stacy. I'm Phil." Phil of the emails is exactly the reaction I got um, <laughs> because I'd sent emails to all of the USOPC staff or USOC staff as it was at the time coming over and um, apparently I, I'd received that nickname um, <laughs> over the time. But yeah, that was how we met. We met in London at the Games and um, afterwards, you know, we uh, quite frankly, we, we had a discussion and said, well, look, we either make a go of this or we don't, which required one of us to move. And we figured out that I knew more people in Colorado Springs than Stacy knew in London. So uh, I ended up in Colorado Springs. I like a good sports love story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one's kind of a fun one. Well, actually, fun fact, we're, we're, Stacey started her career at the Salt Lake 2002 game. So we're, as far as we know, one of very, very few couples where we've both worked on our hometown games. What does she do? So Stacey spent the uh, best part of 20 years in uh, the Paralympic and Olympic movements and worked for uh, an international federation, uh, the International Cricket Council, uh, which, yes, there was an American working for the International Cricket Council whilst a British person ran USA Weightlifting uh, for the most jarring possible piece of information you could get. Because I also did not have a background in weightlifting, by the way. Um, my background is, of all things, ice hockey. And uh, she's worked with um, national governing bodies, USA Taekwondo, the National Strength and Conditioning Association, and the vast majority of her time uh, with the U.S. Uh, Olympic Committee and, and U.S. Paralympics. 
she's now uh, left that and changed careers to be a mental health counselor, um, which we're tremendously proud of her. And certainly some of that is doing some work with athletes, especially looking after the uh, mental health needs of athletes. And you know, talking about the turnaround of USA weightlifting, she's had a huge influence on that. So things like our athlete wellness program, we were the first national governing body to have a mental health specific pro bono program. And and she was a big influence in in helping setting that up um, and and getting that rolling. Uh, so she's her her unique perspective and experience. She's lived on site with the Olympic Training Center for several years, uh, for example, um, has been very very helpful in our changes at USA Weightlifting. Sounds like how ice dancing pairs get together. Right. Exactly. <laughs> doesn't matter what country you're from just somehow they get together and represent a third country yeah that's great that's fine well uh, yeah that kind of that kind of has happened I, I actually have three passports myself i have a canadian passport as well so it's it's um it, 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 it works all right excellent thank you so much phil you can follow phil on instagram he is a dot phil on twitter he is phil andrews usa and he has a website philandrewsofficial.com on Insta yesterday, he was supervising some online qualifying events. Oh, that's really cool. I was going to say they have online, they're still doing uh, virtual competitions. So check out their website, teamusa.org slash USA weightlifting for more on that. If you want to compete, they've got it all set up. They, It's really nice that they're able to do that and give people something to work towards and train towards and still take part in competition. And still feel that sport community. Mm-hmm. So. You know, which is so reassuring when you see people still training and still competing and still participating. It just reminds you that we are going to get through all of this right. and there will be these things when this is over. It's still going to be there. And speaking of sport community, the Chinese Weightlifting Association recently sent USA Weightlifting 500 masks of the surgical variety. So they, USA Weightlifting, donated those masks to UC Health in Colorado Springs, which I'm sure, like every hospital system in the country, desperately needs them right now. So thank <sighs> you. That's very nice that the sports community is coming together to help each other out. Yeah, it's rough. And, you know, uh, we, we talked a bit about Puro Stimos. And I will try to find this link. Hopefully it's on YouTube. I saw on the Olympic channel a couple months ago, this little documentary about him, which is why I was so excited to learn that he was working with USA Weightlifting. And it's about him going for the 2004 Olympics because they were in Athens and his home country and he was coming back from injury and it was really kind of touch and go. Would he be able to make it? And just the, like, I remember the crowds for his competition just going crazy crazy oh it was amazing you know brings tears to my eyes so we'll look for that because that's a really a great little short video to watch was there any ouzo involved in throwing of glasses and dancing when he won uh, likely at homes <laughs> <laughs> not sure they let that into the venue although wouldn't be surprised if it made its way into the venue but i was more saying was there any of that in the documentary because that would mm -hmm. And that, that I don't remember. I just I just remember okay, that, something to um, look for. Yeah. So so that's really good. That's really cool that he's part of USA Weightlifting because he, oh my gosh, what a legend to have on your staff. Well, let's check in with our team Olympic Fever. Tofu. Good news. Good Yay! news. Triathlete Joe Malloy and his wife Jen welcomed a baby daughter, Brooke Elizabeth, on March 20th 
She was five weeks early, but mom and baby are well and are at home. Yet another baby who couldn't wait for the starter gun. (laughs) So I think every Team Olympic favor baby has been early. So if you want to shorten your pregnancy, (laughs) apparently come on the show. Wow. She's beautiful. She's this tiny little nugget. Oh, I'm sure. She's like four pounds. She's just. Wow. It's amazing what healthcare can do. And the fact that she's home. She only spent one week in the NICU. Wow. That's amazing. And she's home and healthy and and absolutely beautiful. And Jen and Joe, just in every picture, are glowing. Oh, I'm sure. That's great. So in love with this little girl already. And then Chelsea Memel has been playing around in her gym because that's... Closed. Yeah, she's closed. But when you own the gym, you can go into the gym if you're the only one there. So she nailed a beam dismount, which was the first time she had done a beam dismount in like eight years. And she said that's planted the seed for Tokyo 2020. She's not committing yet, but her family has said, why not? And wow. she's thinking about it. So watch to her. Be a, to be a beam specialist? I don't know. Huh. But she's she was like, well, you know, she, she's been doing her adult gymnastics and they keep getting more difficult as the weeks go on. And she's been throwing in more tricks and things like that. So she was like, well, let me see what, what I do for a beam dismount and she was like my muscle memory just kicked in and she did like a back double i saw it yeah it was really good (laughs) yeah it was it was amazing and so you never know and you know what is nice when i because i do watch her videos and they make me feel guilty that i can't even barely do a push-up but more importantly it is so nice to see not a 15 year old doing this stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think it it's obviously more difficult when you have a woman's body versus a child's body to flip yourself like this. Right. And I think it, I don't want to say it looks better because that's not right, but there's something more athletic about it. Oh, that's a good point. Right. Because it could take more effort to make your body do something. When when you're a kid, you can just kind of whip yourself around and you have no fear. But, you know, as you get older, just your body changes in different ways and you have to learn how to use it differently. And, just... and there's a mature there's a mature quality to gymnastics as gymnast gets older. Like when you you saw Allie Raceman the second Olympics she was in, mm-hmm. it was so much better. Yeah, I I would agree with you. It's like that for figure skating too. The older yes. figure skaters have this maturity and artistic quality that comes with age and experience. So go Chelsea. Yeah, watch her social media. She is at at C Memel, uh, at least on Twitter, I think it's on Insta, but we'll have uh, links to that show notes. And if you follow us on Twitter, you can follow Team Olympic Fever, the list. And that's just everybody who's on on Twitter, uh, what they've been up to. So that's an easy way to follow along. Moving on to our Tokyo 2020 update. We have new dates for the Olympics. Very exciting. So the Olympics are going to be July 23rd to August 8th, 2021. And the Paralympics are going to be August 24th to September 5th, 2021. So basically, they just pushed it back an exact year. Exactly. So good. I think that gives everybody breathing room, especially since the uh, COVID-19 outbreak keeps growing and we haven't quite flattened the curve yet. But it allows a lot of time for federations to be able to schedule their qualifications and give athletes enough time to get a good training cycle done. And and I think it kind of helps coaches and athletes who go, okay, we were just planning for this year. Now we do kind of same plan for next year, almost, if you can. 
Right. And the but. federations have started coming out. World Athletics said they're going to reschedule Portland. That was originally for 2021. And a few other of the federations have said, okay, now that we know this date, mm-hmm. we're going to start organizing. So the athletes are going to know very quickly how the next two right. years are going to pan out. They have not released the detailed schedule yet. So we don't know if things are going to fall on the same days within, you know, day mm-hmm. one, day two, day three. But they, according to the Tokyo 2020 website, tickets that have already been purchased will be honored for the same event and session, mm, regardless of where it falls into the schedule. If you bought your tickets directly from the organizing committee, which I think can only be done in Japan, they're going to refund you if you can't go to the new date. Oh, that's nice. I think CoSport will probably do the same. I, I would right. imagine that just that trickles down to all the authorized ticket resellers. Right. So authorized ticket resellers have not individually announced their refund policies yet. So it depends on where you bought them. But I agree with you. I think they're just going to try and reapply those dates mm-hmm. and tickets. But, you know, obviously some people won't be able to go as they planned so that they're going to offer refunds. And it's not like, you know, I think even with this COVID because within Japan, the desire for tickets was so strong. I don't think that's going to disappear. So I don't think they're yeah, not going to have the crowds at be. that point. Yeah, we'll see. It's interesting because the new dates, they do kind of conflict with some other events, not just international federations. There's something called the World Games, which is mostly sports that are not on the Olympic calendar. But there are a few that overlap. Like there's some uh, archery, I believe, is on there. There's some gymnastics or some forms of gymnastics on the the calendar there's there's a few sports and those are scheduled to be in Birmingham Alabama I believe they started like the 25th of July but they were in 2021 they're looking at how they can move their games so that they don't overlap and the interesting thing is that this also kind of pushes into 2022 and the Commonwealth Games the summer version of the Commonwealth Games they'll have to look and see how that kind of lines up with the calendar now that the international federations are moving some championships around. And Beijing 2022 has come out with a statement that said, this is going to be the first time that this has happened since Mm -hmm. they switched the calendars to alternating Mm -hmm. every two years where a summer and a winter are going to be so close. But basically the statement was a a lot of words to say, yo, we got this. Oh, that's good. Yeah, so that was... Yeah, it'll just be going back in the institutional memory to remember how they had games in the the same same year. year. And it was, I mean, it's about, what, 30 years, almost. Yeah, 1992 was the last last one. one. So not that long ago. There are still people at the IOC. Trust me, there are still people at the IOC (laughs) who remember when it used to be all at once. I do. I also want to say props to the Tokyo 2020 organizing committee for getting these new dates set so quickly. They have so much work to do. They've made the decision that I think originally, and we talked about this last week, that the IOC was going to wait to issue everything at once. Mm -hmm. And they've switched that, you know, the IOC's view has become, we're going to piece these out. And I think that's much better. Yes, I think so too. With because the... they're answered, they're saying, okay, here's the dates. We'll get you the schedule, and probably another week we're going to have the schedule with the, how quickly they've been pulling mm-hmm. things together. You know, they already said things about tickets, so they're letting it's. I'm just so impressed with how they're handling this situation. You know, they are turning the Titanic. 
Yeah, and do so far doing a very commendable job. And yeah. just the sheer amount of work that the team has to do to make this happen and move everything. Just the the fact that they were able to come up with these dates so quickly was I, I was very surprised. I thought it would be a couple weeks before we found out. But it's really nice that they did. That gives some peace of mind in a time where a lot of people are facing and feeling a lot of anxiety. So I think having information as they set things helps alleviate some of that. And Yeah, I agree. Probably takes the pressure off of them to have a perfect plan right away. Right. So more good news. Both Visa and Toyota have announced that they'll continue their sponsorships through 2021. Mm. And those are two of the top sponsors. Yes. And didn't Visa say that they were also going to keep their athlete yes. roster funded? So that is also good news for a lot of Visa athletes around the world. So Team Visa will continue to have their money. And I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot of these. I think both Visa and Toyota had contracts with the IOC longer than 2020. So it was easier for them. Mm-hmm to make this. So for companies whose contracts were ending in 2020, it's probably going to be a little bit longer for these announcements because they actually have to renegotiate Ah. some things. So yeah, so the Toyota cars will be there to drive you around. Good. Or the robots or the self-driving cars or who knows what they're going to have. They were planning to have the robots at the airports and now they may have more robots because you don't want to have, you know, close personal contact. The robots will deliver things. Hmm. Oh, maybe the robots will hand out the medals. That would actually be really cool. Instead of the girls coming out, not that I want people to lose their jobs, the robot rolls out with the flowers and the medals. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> they could have little outfits too. <laughs> or with, with holding the country things in the, the country parade. I always feel bad for the girls who are holding, because it's always girls. And it's always young girls holding the signs for the country parade and the opening ceremony. Imagine if they did that with robots. They wouldn't have to worry about the girls passing out in the heat. True. Get on it, Toyota. I just (laughs) created a whole new market for you. (laughs) And they could put really giant headpieces on them. Remember, the weight probably wouldn't matter. Exactly. Remember at Sochi, the girls had those giant sort of crystally looking ones. Mm -hmm. They were beautiful, but I kept thinking, oh my God, their necks must be killing them between holding the country sign and the giant crystal thing. Use a robot. It could be any weight you want. It could be like the Miss Universe crown and flashing lights and electronics. Well, we will see. Come on, Toyota. I want a cut of the profits on that one. (laughs) Put it it toward the podcast. It'll be... (laughs) Help us rebrand. Exactly. All right, that will wrap it up for this week. Let us know what you think about the potential for robots at Tokyo 2020. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. We're olimfever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. I like a good sports love story. <laughs> do, 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 do.